Uh, we are in James chapter 2, and as I was reading through this, I was reminded of the story actually from a different Bible passage. It was actually in Judges chapter 12. And in Judges chapter 12, there's a story about these two tribes that are at war with one another, the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. Now, some of you have no clue who that is, but these two tribes were warring with one another until the Gileadites actually captured what is known as the fords of the Jordan River, basically this area where people would cross. They captured it. Now, the Ephraimites, though, still needed to get across the Jordan to do different things. So they would have to go to their enemies, these Gileadites, and said, hey, you know, let us across. And they'd say, well, are you an Ephraimite? Because if you are, we're not letting you across. So they would say, no, they totally lie. Well, these guys are like, well, of course they're not going to tell the truth. So they came up with this test. They said, all right, you can cross if you can say this word right. Now, some of you might know this story, but the word, does, does anyone here know what the word was? It's called shibboleth. That was the word. And if you could say that word right, they could come across. Now, there's just a problem, though. The Ephraimites couldn't say the sh sound. They'd say it sh. So they'd say sibboleth instead of shibboleth. And then as soon as they'd say, sure, I'll say sibboleth. And they'd say, you're not, and of course, you're not, you're of our enemies. And they would actually strike them down and kill them. And it became known as this test. It's actually gone through time where people would say there's this shibboleth of, of the faith. There are certain things that prove the reality of who we are. We still have this today, and James is actually using that. This passage is talking about the shibboleth of our faith, what really proves that we are God's people. It's not about what words we pronounce, but it's about actually the acts that we do. And they actually prove the reality of the faith that we espouse. Because today in our world, we have so many people that will give lip service to Christ. And yet when you talk to them, everything that they espouse, everything that they say they believe is completely antithetical or contradictory to God's word. So we have to go back and examine their life and apply this shibboleth, this test of faith, to see if really they are who they say they are. And James is presenting this test to not just them, but us. And he's asking us this question. Are you really who you say you are? Do you say one thing with your mouth? And do you go out the door and you deny him with your lifestyle? That's as uh, Brennan Manning actually made that comment some time ago. He's known as the author of this book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. But he said the greatest cause for atheism in the world today are those who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and they go out the door and they deny him by their lifestyle. And we have to ask ourselves our question, do our works, does our life match the truth that we espouse with our lips? So James is giving us then today a faith check, our own shibboleth of sorts, to see if we can really look in the mirror at our lives and, and look at that person staring back at us and say, am I truly in the faith? Does my life truly represent? And can the, the Spirit of Christ, or does the Spirit of God, is it truly showing in the different parts of my life? So today, I would ask us all to do a little introspection, to look into the mirror of the Word of God and let God look back at you. I've often said it's not how we read the Word of God, it's how we let the Word of God read us. So let's open our hearts to see what God has for us, to let Him do His own faith check, of our hearts to see if we are truly, uh, to see what our faith is.
Because James is going to present to us today not just uh, a mirror, but he's going to explain and introduce us to different types of faith that we might have. And some are just pretty bad. And one is the one that he wants us to have. So today, let's ask God to open our hearts to receive what his word has for us. But before we go any further, let's invite his spirit to convict us and speak to us today. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that you are God. Knowing that your word is true. Knowing that it cuts through the fog of unbelief, the masks that we seek to put forward and shows us really who we are and all of our ugliness and all of our sin and all of our pride. Lord, it reveals the inner, the true inner person. And Lord, today we pray that you might do your surgery on our hearts, that you might change us, you might transform us, you might speak to us to help us to be your people, that you help, might help us to apply this this faith check, this shibboleth to our hearts to change us, to transform us, to help us to have this faith that we should have. So be with us, direct us, convict us, and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump right in to our text, shall we? James chapter 2, verse 14. James is having this hypothetical conversation And he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He says, he's again having this hypothetical conversation with these imaginary believers in in, in many ways. And he says, hey, if you have faith that does not have works, if you really have that type of faith, if you have a faith that's just with your words and not your actions, is it really a saving faith? And then he tries to show what real faith looks like in action. And he, he looks in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, I mean, they're cold, it's cold outside, they're, they're hungry, they're just having little bits of food here and there, probably living on ramen. And one, of the, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body. What good is that? So faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he introduces us to this first faith. This is a dead faith. I have four faiths that I think he's, I, I, I see four faiths that he introduces to us within this passage. And the first one is a faith that is dead. It's one that's completely worthless. And here's what it looks like. This faith really has words. It talks about itself. Hey, I'm a believer. I do all this stuff. I go to church. I have all this, you know, but it, what it really lacks is works is works. They say a good game, but they're not willing to really put their money where their mouth is. It's, it's like this parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the great banquet. I don't know if you remember it or not, but Jesus talks about these men that, are, uh, that a man th- decides to throw a party, and he invites all of these people that he knows, and each one has an excuse on why they can't come. One says, well, I just purchased some property and I got to look after it. The other guy goes, well, I just bought some oxen and I got to take care of them. And the other guy goes, well, I just got married. I can't come either. And so the servant, after he hears these reports, goes back to the master and says, these are all the excuses that the people have. And the, 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 the man hosting the banquet is infuriated. So he tells his servant to go out and get everybody on the street and invite them. 
He goes, because that's who's going to come. And it's really actually a story about the nation of Israel that's not recognizing who Jesus is. Therefore, he lets everybody into the kingdom of God. But there's also a, a, a second kind of meaning to the story where you see the excuses that people have on why they're not living out their faith. Why they can't truly partake of Christ, to be of Christ. And we have all of these different excuses that we use within our lives. And James is saying that you might have words, you talk about it, you say you go to this church, you do that, you might have this Bible, you espouse this, but yet you never help anybody. Then your faith is completely dead. Dead. You have a completely dead faith. And, I, and I've seen Christians talk about all the time. And as Christians, we're good at talking a big game. But I'd like to change the metaphor a little bit. I mean, just because you say a Christian doesn't mean you are one. I can say I'm a professional athlete. <laughs> but until I actually step on the field or a court, it's not happening. But if you say you're a Christian, it's got to be seen in the, the arena of life. We can say it all we want, but it doesn't make it true. So this first faith that he talks about is a dead faith. But then there's a second faith that he mentions, and it's a deficient one. This is a deficient faith. Look at verse 18 for a moment. But someone will say, again, hypothetical conversation, you have faith, but I've got works. Show me your faith. And then he, James kind of answers it. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Now what he's doing here is he's driving out this this deficient faith. Because these people are doing good works, but they lack the substance of the real gospel itself. See, it looks good on the outside, but there's something that's missing. It's like the story, and I'm sure you guys have heard this story, about the pastor who had gone uh, to visit an older woman in the church who'd been shut in for some time. And he sits down with her and he starts talking and he notices this bowl of peanuts that are in front of him and he asks his host if he can have some of the peanuts and she says, why, sure. So he says, only means to take a few and he keeps talking with her and he's eating the peanuts and about an hour has gone by and he stands up to leave and he looks down at the bowl and he sees that he's eaten now all the peanuts. And then he apologizes to the woman. He said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to eat all of your peanuts. I only meant to have a few. And then the older woman said, Oh, that's okay. Ever since I lost my teeth, all I can do is suck the chocolate off of them. So it's the idea then. It's a deficient faith. It looks good, but there's something missing. We don't know what that is, but there's something that's missing there. And that's what's going on. Many of us have that faith. And see, this is a faith that has what I like to call the social gospel, but not saving faith. Now, what is that? See, a social gospel is the idea, and it was actually birthed in the early 20th century, late 19th century, is that we can do good and bring about the kingdom of God. And they were doing all these good acts. They were helping the homeless. They were helping the poor. They were helping and speaking and helping the, 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 the most vulnerable among us. They were doing all of this great stuff, but they weren't sharing in the greater need of the gospel of Christ. See, these needs that we are to meet as a church, we are to do good works, But if it's not coupled with saving faith, it's nothing. Ultimately, in the sight of God. Because we want to meet people's physical needs so that that we can then speak to their greater spiritual needs, which is Jesus Christ. Now, some people think, well, I just want to do good. God's okay with my good works. He wants me to do a lot of good stuff. I don't need to tell him about who Jesus is. 
you know, and, and I'm fine in the sight of God because I do all this good stuff. I don't need that other stuff. You're mis- you're, you really don't understand the gospel then. You really don't get it. Because, you know, it's not about what you do. It's what he's already done. And trusting in that. But we have to understand that. Matter of fact, the Bible gives us some really interesting look at how God looks at our, good, our, our works apart from faith. We see this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So he's saying there, we think our righteous deeds are great, and God's saying, no, 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 no. no. You think you have righteousness apart from Christ? If we were looking at it from a New Testament perspective, you can't have that. You can never be good enough in God's sight. You can never earn God's favor. Now, you can't make a sacrifice too great and think that you're going to get God's favor. Because the only favor that really God sees is the one that Christ himself earned. And ours is trusting in that. See, Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human will be justified, declared righteous, is what that means, in his sights, in his sights since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Probably the greatest verse that illustrates this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace, God's gift, you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. You couldn't earn this. You couldn't do enough in the sight of God to get God's grace. If that were the case, then it's not God's grace any longer. It's earned. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see here that there's a, this... This faith that we have um, is dead, where it has words and no works. And here we have another faith that is deficient, and basically it has works, but it really doesn't have the, the substance of the gospel that's there, that's saving faith. So it has a social aspect to it, but it doesn't speak to the, the deeper spiritual needs that people have. Therefore, it is deficient. It is incomplete. It is not the faith that God wants us to have. Now, so, so many Christians, especially those of, that are considered themselves evangelicals, have stayed away from the aspects of the social gospel and have withdrawn themselves from the greater community because they didn't want to be aligned with that. So they focused on saving faith while making themselves, in many ways, irrelevant because they weren't meeting the needs of the people in the community any longer. And they gave themselves over. So it's a both and, not an either or. That's why one of the reasons we have so much frustration in our political process, because in many ways, each of the different political parties has an aspect of what the gospel talks about in it. And it, it does. If you, if you can't see that, I mean, I'm not saying that each one doesn't have bad stuff in it. Each one does. But we have this tendency to go on one side and lose this aspect of the gospel and then go over here and then lose that aspect of the gospel. And we have to hold these in tension. That's why we don't talk about political parties. We talk about Christ crucified. Because it's Christ crucified that brings salvation. And it's the one that transforms a human individual who helps then transform society by reaching out and touching people. By doing those good deeds so that Christ might be proclaimed. I was speaking with a Muslim friend of mine and we were dialoguing back and forth and he said, you pay for people to convert to Christianity. 
And I said, no, we don't have that kind of money, <laughs> number one. And number two, it's not a genuine conversion if they did. He goes, well, you do good deeds so that people will convert. I went, that's true. Because we do good deeds so that we can speak to them about their greater need, which is Jesus Christ. We want them to see Jesus by our good deeds. So we have to understand that and keep that in, in tension. Because we can have, again, we can have this dead faith, which is words and no works. And then we can have a deficient faith, which is a social gospel without saving faith. But then there's another category too. And this is, this is the one that kind of freaks you out. You can have a demonic faith. And I don't mean a faith like in that you are filled with a demon. You're demonized. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking that you can have the same type of faith that demons have. Do you know that demons have faith? We don't think of that, but demons do. James actually talks about this within our passage for today. He starts off in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe. He, he actually starts off. He says, you have this faith uh, that is demonic. I mean, they, they have faith. Satan has faith. He believes in God. It's not a saving belief. It's the same belief that I have about Tom Brady. I know that he exists, and I know that he's great, but that doesn't mean I follow him or like him. I despise him. Okay? It's the same type of thing, though. You can have a faith that is demonic. And here is the thing about demons that we can tell from James. See, notice this claim that James hypothetically makes. He says, you believe that God is one. Now, to a Jewish group, and the, many of these Christians were, had come from J- Jewish backgrounds, and what is the, ha- the rallying cry of the nation of Israel? It actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's known as the Shema. And it's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. It was meant to differentiate Israel from all of the different pagan nations they were surrounded by that had all of these different gods and goddesses. You had all of the nation, I mean, you have the, the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses, the Roman pantheon gods and goddesses, the Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses. And they're saying, no, the Lord, our God, our God is one. And the, every Jew, without exception, knew that. They knew that. And so he's saying, this is what you believe. Even the demons believe that God is one. In other words, their faith is demonic, but this, this kind of faith can have correct doctrine. You can have correct doctrine and still be a heretic and still be lost. See, correct doctrine does not guarantee correct practice. These demons believed that God was one and they shuddered. They had a fear of God. They had conviction, if you will. Now, how many of us have had that? We believe that we have the right stuff. We've gone to the right church, the right schools, followed the right teachers and preachers, read from the right Bibles. We haven't interacted with the wrong people. And we went to the right conferences. We had correct doctrine, and demons have correct doctrine. They believe that God is one. But what they lack is a desire to submit. See, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to submit to what God has for us. See, demons believe, but they don't submit. If we believe and don't submit, we're having a very similar faith to that of demons. So we have to say to ourselves, we have to submit to what God has shown us to surrender our lives and do what God wants us to do. Demons do not love God, nor can they. But what about us? We might believe rightly, but do we submit? Do we surrender 
That's what it comes back to, doing that which pleases God, which must begin with believing in the one he has sent, as John 6.29 says. That means submitting who we are then to God. But James transitions to another faith here. Look at verse 20 with me. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active doing with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So he's introduced to us then a dead faith, a deficient faith, a demonic faith, and now he's giving us an example and showing, really explaining what a dynamic faith is. This is what a dynamic, a living, fruitful faith looks like. And he, and he shows us and illustrates us, it, it for us with two opposing examples. He gives us Abraham, who's righteous, who is known as the father of monotheism, the father, father of Judaism. I mean, he's a godly guy. We have Abraham over here. And on this side, we have one born outside of the covenant community of God, who is a woman and also a prostitute in Rahab. And he's excusing these as a spectrum to say, I don't care how good you think you are or how bad you think you are, both of them have to come and find justification in the sight of God by faith. And that transforms them into their actions. So he's using these, saying, hey, he could use Abraham, and people would say, well, I'm not Abraham. I've really messed up in my life. And he, he says, hey, hey, here you go. i got Abraham over here. This is a person, you could even put in a modern equivalent. They were homeschooled. They did all the good stuff. And then you got all the person over here that was um, doing every drug that they possibly could and sleeping with everything that they possibly could. You have two extremes, but both of them by faith. And that's what he's saying. It's through faith, and he's showing this dynamic faith. Now, Abraham, if you remember the story, Abraham, and this is what's amazing about Abraham. Abraham had, uh, was given this promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I mean, this is a massive promise. And that he would have a child. And, and he, he decides, you know what, I'm getting too old. He takes matters into his own hands. Remember the story. And he ends up uh, sleeping with his wife's servant, who's given to him as a wife, which is a customary practice for, uh, especially for a woman who was um, barren. And then she gives her servant to him, and then he gets her pregnant and has Ishmael. But God says, no, 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 no. That's the promise you took in your own hands. I'll bless him, but that's not the child that I promised you. This one's going to come from you and your wife, and I want to show it's from me. And he gives him this child, Isaac, in his old age. And he's about 100 years old. Sarah's about 90 and still a looker, by the way. I mean, Sarah's a beautiful woman. If you know anything about the, the scriptures and teach it, that Pharaoh saw her and wanted her as his wife. She was the most beautiful 90-year-old woman he'd ever seen, probably. All right? And then he, he then has a child, though, with Sarah. And this child grows up, and he embodies every promise that Abraham had been given by God. This was the future. This was the anointed child. 
This was the child that, through whom God would bless all the world that he thought, whether that was through him or having a, a grandchild or whatever it might be. But then God calls him to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice that son. I can't imagine the faith that Abraham had to have. To go up that mountaintop, to, to leave his servant behind, to have Isaac, Isaac probably wondering where the sacrifice was, and then to start tying Isaac up, and then to lay him on the altar. And he picks the knife up, and the way it says in Hebrew is he brings this knife up, and as soon as he starts to bring it down, God says, no, stop. I know that you won't withhold your son, your only son from me, that you fear me and you believe me. Because, and it, we learn later that Abraham believed that is if he killed him, that God would resurrect him from the dead. He had an amazing faith. But see, God calls us to do something similar. If we're going to show our faith, he's saying, what's your Isaac? What is that thing in your life that you want to hold on to and you don't want him to have? And God is saying, no, 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 I have to have that one thing. And see, it's different for each one of us. You see that with the, the, the story or the parable that Jesus tells of the rich young ruler, where the rich young ruler comes in and kneels down before Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this is what you want is, as a pastor. You're like, wow, this guy's young. He's got time. He's not married, and he's got money. Welcome to the membership class, brother. But Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. Are you prepared to recognize me as God in essence is what he's saying. And he says, you know the commandments. And then the young man proceeds. To, I mean, Jesus quotes several of the commandments, not all of them. And the young man assures him, I've done these since I was a young man. And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And says, this you must do. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And it says he went away sad because he had many possessions. But see, that was, that was his Isaac. That was the one thing he had to give up. What is that one thing that God's calling you to surrender? What sin, what practice, what person, what relationship? What job? What comfort? What's that thing that he wants from you? Because God wants you, but he wants all of you. And we have to give up that thing that's most precious. That's what he's calling. That's what dynamic faith looks like. As Jim Elliott said, he who is no fool, who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So true. So he sees, he shows this in these two opposing examples. We have Abraham over here, but then we have Rahab. And if you remember the story about Rahab, Rahab was living in Jericho, which was marked to be taken over. The Israelites had been, had been wandering, in the, uh, wandering in the wilderness for so long. They're, they're chomping at the bit to enter into the promised land. Joshua sends in two spies to check it out, goes in, spies out Jericho, and they meet Rahab. Rahab knows they're Jewish, and, and so the community knows they're Jewish. And they show up, they're trying to find out who these guys are that entered in to destroy them, and she ends up hiding them away. And in doing so, she elicits a promise from them. She goes, please do not destroy me and my family. We fear God. And they said, here, then do this. Tie this scarlet thread outside your window, and when we attack, we make sure that if, you, if you're there, we won't destroy you. And that's exactly what happened. And then Rahab is privileged actually to become uh, assimilated into the Jewish nation and then becomes actually a, a mother in Israel. But it's to say that even this prostitute, this outsider, can be brought in. And it was her faith that was seen in how she hid the spies, which was not comfortable, which was costly, which was risky. See, our faith, we're good with faith as long as it's safe for the whole family. 
We are. And I'm amazed at that. I'm, sometimes I look at the scripture and I go, you're not reading the same Bible I am. Because faith is not safe. Jesus never called us to be safe. Not once. He called us to risk everything for the gospel. See, dynamic faith is willing to risk it all to get it all. And we can see that in these opposing examples. Now, what does that mean for us? I want to get a little bit practical here for a little bit. Because we talk about faith, we talk about all this stuff. Because I, I, I really want us to understand what we're giving up. And not just what we're giving up, but what we're getting in the process. I mean, what, what is this? Why, why does God want us to do? And, and what does he want us to do? And we have to understand that there are opportunities all around us. That's the next thing I want you to write down. I mean, we can talk all day long and digest the scripture and pass it around, but I want to talk about the opportunities. I want to talk about some very practical ways that we can show the reality of our faith. Because I do believe that God's doing some great things in this church, but I also believe that it's just the beginning of so much more. I believe that he wants us to get out into our community and show Christ's love through helping other people. And you can do this in a lot of ways. You can go on one of the short-term mission trips that I just mentioned to. Maybe it's overseas. Maybe it's just down the street. Maybe it's volunteering at the Pregnancy Information Center who need volunteers. Maybe it's volunteering with World Relief. Maybe it's helping uh, with, uh, what's the hunger thing that we do? Feed my starving children. Volunteering like that. Maybe it's being a tutor in one of our schools. Maybe it's partnering with one of the new families that's, that's new to our community that just arrived from a different land. Maybe it's partnering with them. Maybe it's going over, inviting them over for dinner, and then going over to their home for eating their food, asking questions, getting to know their culture. These are the things that we're talking about. And, I mean, maybe it's helping with our friendship gardens, or maybe it's doing this. And I have this idea. Maybe I'm a little nuts. I probably am a little nuts. But I'd like us to start a thing here called the Friendship Center. And I've talked about this for some time, but I have some ideas now I want, more, I want it to look like. I'd like to get us several different computers, and I'd like to set up some classes for those in our community that don't have any computer skills whatsoever for, like, Microsoft Office or Word or any of that stuff, and then we could come in and tutor those, whether they're, they're uh, single parents, whether there are people that are new to the community, uh, they can learn some online skills, help their skills. I'd also like us to see having conversation classes with different people of different cultures that are here to helping them learn English. And I'd like to see us, and again, I'm a little crazy, but I'd like to see us get a bunch of sewing machines and offer sewing classes for people in our community to help them learn how to sew and maybe even start venturing into doing some microfinance stuff. Microfinance, meaning I'd like to see us start some programs, even not just here but abroad, where we give loans to different people and help them start a job in the hope that they too might know who Jesus is. And that can only not change change them, but they change their family and change their culture and sharing Jesus at the same time. And so I, I'd like us to do some of these things. And we're looking for more ideas. What does God want us to do? Now, we can't do all of them. And we have to, do, we have to be selective. But I, I believe this is what we have. We have opportunities all around us. And we, so many of us have been coming in and giving credence to God and not doing anything with it. And we're spiritually fat. That's the problem that many of us have. And there's so many different things that we can do. It's sponsor a child. I mean, we've had Juna Amargara, we've had different ministries come in, and, and this is a small thing that you can do. I mean, for some it might be small, for some it might be quite large. But um, I was reading an article the other day that they were talking about how you want to change the world, sponsor a child. 
Because what it does is it multiplies their uh, future and hope, whether they're going on to secondary school or college, or, and, and it increases their hope of being a community leader or church leader just by sponsoring a child. And statistics have proven it. There are so many different things that we can do. And you know what? We're, we can't always look at what other churches are doing. I have other churches calling us because they hear what God is doing here. And you know what? There is not any, any, any law to limit what can be done here. And we have to think creatively for the kingdom of God, and we need to do so together. Because if we want to see the kingdom of God go forth, then it begins by meeting the needs of people. And when we meet those physical needs, or whatever it might be, emotional needs, whatever the need they have, so that we can point them to their greater spiritual need, which is Jesus. I don't know if you knew this or not. I've shared this before. But when communism took control in Russia in the early 1900s, do you know that they, they didn't ban people from expressing their faith or, or, or sharing Christ? You know what? They banned good works. They banned them doing good works. And the church became irrelevant overnight. That should be telling something to us. That God's created us to be both and. And that means going out into our community. And it means it's going to be messy. Ministry is messy. It never falls within the categories that you want it to. You're going to deal with personalities and schedules and issues and sins and people hurting one another's feelings. All that's going to happen. But if we want the kingdom of God to go forth and we believe that God is greater than that, then we're going to fight through those things. And that's what God wants us to do. I believe deeply in my heart that's what God wants us to do. That we need to get beyond the theoretical, but we need to grasp what these opportunities that God has right in front of us. But to take advantage of these opportunities, we're going to have to make some changes. This past week, I was reading a great book um, called Our Global Families by a guy who was one of my mentors. And they're just looking at what God's people are doing in the world. And in this, he cites this book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, who's a New York Times bestselling author. And he wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And in this book, he tells the story that there was a t- uh, um, an experiment done at this seminary, although the students didn't know they were a part of the, the experiment. And each of the, the students were told that they had to make a presentation to the class. And then as they're on the way, they actually had two groups that they gave this assignment to, and they had, they had an idea to see if it would work. And the first group they told that you have a, you have a presentation to make and you're late. And on the way to the presentation, they had an actor fall and get hurt really badly right in front of them. And they wanted to see, do these students, who many of them were going to make a presentation about the Good Samaritan, willing to act as the Good Samaritan when they're late? How many students stopped? 10% of those who were told they were running late. But there was a shift in the second group. They said to them, you have time. You have time. 63% stopped when they had time. And what does that tell you? We're so busy that we can't help people. We need to change the way we think. I know for those who come from majority world cultures, one of the things that freaks you out is how busy it is here. Let me tell you, I grew up in this majority world culture, and it freaks me out how busy we are here. And I'd actually like to learn more from you about your culture because I think that our busyness is not a good thing. I think it's a bad thing. When it keeps us from doing what God wants us to do, then that's a problem. But we need to, and we know this, we all agree, we need to be doing something, right? 
You know what happens if we just sit here and listen to sermons? You know, in Israel, there are two bodies of water. Two bodies of water. There's the Sea of Galilee, and then there's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead because it's just full of salt. Nothing grows in it. No fish, nothing. It's just this flat thing. I've been in it. I've been on the Sea of Galilee, and I've been in the Dead Sea. And you just go out in the Sea of Galilee, and you just float. And after a while, it's like, this is fun. And then you're like, this is not fun anymore. It's just doing nothing. Nothing's happening. No life. It's dead. You go to the Sea of Galilee, and it's vibrant. There's fish and all these different things that are there. Do you know that both of them are fed by the Jordan River? Do you know what the difference is? One has an outlet. Sea of Galilee takes water in and then sends water out. Dead Sea just ends. There are some of us that have just been hearing sermons, but you're a dead sea of faith because you got nothing out. And God's calling us to find that outlet. You can't do everything, but you can do one thing to help make a difference in a life. And not just so that they'll have more money and a better job and a quality of life, which we want, but for the greater need that they have of Jesus Christ. That they might have their sins forgiven. That they might have life forever with God. That's our shibboleth. The good works that we do proves the authenticity of our faith. Our good works don't save us. He said in here, it's not your faith alone that saves you. What he's meaning by that is, is that he's talking to a group of people that have faith in no works. He says it's that type of faith that doesn't save you. But let me tell you, faith does save you, but it's a faith that doesn't act alone. It is faith alone, but faith that doesn't act alone. It's a faith that finds its expression and its action. How about our action? Are we willing to do that? Can we accurately, if we were to stand before a group of people, and can sh- could we show and say shibboleth by our works to show the authenticity of our faith? If not, we need some changes that we got to make. We need to ask God to do some spiritual heart surgery on us, to transform us, to help us to be the people he wants us to be. And then watch and wait, because he'll do a work that we can't even begin to comprehend. My, one of my favorite passages as I conclude today, and I'm concluding early, which is rare, so don't get used to it. Um, but in Ephesians chapter 3, I've meditated on this passage so many times. But in Ephesians 3.20, the Apostle Paul by the Spirit says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask, or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen he is able to do more than we could ever ask or think we need to big dream big dreams for what God has for us because he wants to do more than we could ever ask or imagine but it's not based on our power but the power that raised Jesus from the dead where God glorifies his name. He wants to do that work in in your midst, in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your church, in this body. Let's make sure that we pray that together. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Holy God, you are God or not. 
No matter how much we think of our abilities and how busy we are and how great we are, how smart we are, how talented we are, Lord, we know that without you, we are nothing. And Lord, we want to give our lives up for something greater than ourselves. And we know that that is for the gospel. Lord, help us to understand where works fit in. Help us not to have a faith that is dead, just about words and no works. Help us not to have a deficient faith that is looking at that social aspect, not the saving faith. Help us not to have that demonic faith, which is correct in doctrine, but doesn't have a desire to submit. And Lord, our God, please help us have a dynamic faith. Help us to have a faith that goes beyond the walls, that gets down deep into our everyday lives that connects us with those who do not yet know you. Lord, forgive us for getting spiritually fat and lazy. Lord, we, when we hear we've, we don't know enough, we're not trained enough, and yet we look back at your word and see how those who had heard your message went out immediately because they were equipped by your spirit. May we learn what the spirit life is, how to be filled with the spirit, to walk by the spirit, and to let the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead truly have his way within each one of us. Because when we do, we know that there can be done in our lives more than we could ever ask or imagine. And Lord, do a work within us. Do our work within our families. Do our work within our workplaces and our schools and our community, our neighborhoods, and in our church that only you can receive glory for, as you already are doing. So bless us, grow us, and use us to extend your kingdom, not just here, but all over the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.